You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. I wrote these words in my house as New York City entered phase two, uh, whatever that means and all that that entails. But honestly, this virus is going to be with us for a, a while, probably a long while. And I'm not as antsy to get out of the house anymore. My life has now winnowed down to a small footprint. I'm homesteading in Manhattan. I cook. I even bake. And to facilitate that, I spend a great deal of my time figuring out what I'm going to cook for my boyfriend and myself. And then I go through the pantry to see what we have. And then I invariably need one or two ingredients that I don't have. Then I either risk going to the corner market or I compromise and substitute. Sometimes those experiments work, sometimes they don't. This is what I do now. I clean. I load and unload the dishwasher. In fact, if love were about touch and how much you touch someone or something, my dishwasher has become my lover. It's true. It's my partner in quarantine. I read. I don't watch much TV these days. I organize. I try to get rid of things. That feels good. My guest today, Stephanie Dandler, is the author of a hugely successful first novel that you've probably read called Sweet Bitter about a backwaiter in a very important New York restaurant. It was turned into a TV series on stars for two seasons, and she worked on that as well. It was not a memoir. It was a novel. Her new book, Stray, is a memoir, and it is a trip and a half, as no one says anymore. It's intense. It's poetic. It's filled with a shocking amount of parental neglect, bad choices, danger, impulse, impulsivity on everybody's behalf. If you look at her picture, you see a beautiful, cool-looking young writer who is now a mother and a wife. But when you read this book, Stray, you understand that... (laughs) The composure and the success she's had comes from a true struggle and an an enormous amount of work. And I hope you like the conversation. I loved her book, and I loved talking to Stephanie. So now it's my time to do my five things. And I have to say, number one, oldie but goodie, it's my family. Um, maybe I'm thinking about my family because Stephanie's memoir was about a family that was very, very dysfunctional. I was very lucky not to have that. And honestly, I had a very easy childhood compared to my children. Am I a worse parent than my parents? Mm. Circumstances were different. I was married to someone who didn't have the same values as I had, or we didn't want the same things. And, you know, my kids had to do a lot of the growing up and life lessons themselves. And as I do every day in my head, if not every day on the phone, I apologize for all the unhappy times they had. And I just love them so much. Number two, 
My family now extends to my partner and his lovely daughter and my lovely daughter-in-law and the baby. It's wonderful to fall in love as an adult. You know yourself better and you're not doing it for anyone else. And I've fallen in love with a baby. You'll be hearing more about him when he starts to talk. (laughs) Number three, early voting. Uh, We voted in the Democratic primary over the weekend, last weekend, at a very clean, well-appointed, well-monitored, six-foot interval polling place in a high school in Harlem. Everyone was so helpful. Everybody was just seemed very happy to be there. Now, it's not the most consequential of voting days or ballots because it was the presidential primary. And it's not that consequential because we already have more or less a candidate uh, nominee. But it's always a privilege to vote, especially when you start to think about this country this administration removing a lot of our privileges. So voting is something I always appreciate. Number four, a kitchen scale. I never knew I would need a kitchen scale. I'm on my second purchase of flour in the last few months. This is just a whole new me. Anyway, I know that this scale is going to help me measure. And as a plus, I can also weigh small packages on it. It's a multitasker. Number five, and I dedicate this to Exhibit C. I think I'm cured now of shopping over Instagram. It's a disease. Things look fantastic. Like, why didn't I ever think of a purple silicone cup to put in boiling water to poach an egg? Or why would anybody have to go to Mexico to buy an embroidered blouse when you could buy one right on Instagram? Well, you know, I asked myself that. And then I got involved in a little dispute. And then PayPal had to come in and there was a lot of back and forth. And the company in China sent me a letter in Chinese, which I can't read. Anyway, no more Instagram. A lot of what you see there, maybe they're only modeling the samples and the actual products or cheap facsimiles of what you think you're buying. So I got a refund and I'm quitting cold turkey. You know, in in quarantine, Instagram shopping is not just fun. It's a disease. So we will come back after a second, and you will meet Stephanie Dandler. Don't go away. Welcome back. It's Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week is author Stephanie Dandler. You probably know her from her novel, Sweet Bitter, which was a huge success out of the park and became a successful TV series. Well, she has something new and extraordinary, and it's called Stray, a memoir, and she joins me from her home in California. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted that uh, I'm delighted to talk to you now that I feel I know everything about you. You um, kind of do, at- actually. <laughs> 
Well, when you read somebody's mm-hmm. memoir, especially one as um, I would say honest, I'm saying this based on reading difficult things that you wrote about your family and yourself. I assume it's honest. Why else would you possibly, possibly want to share this information and your background? And I also think it's a tremendous act of, well, one critic says it's one of the most generous books, memoirs she's read. I read someone else who said, a memoir is selfish because then it's your memory, not the others. That is the account of record. But it's so, it's, it's, it's a painful story, Stephanie. And I guess when people meet you, they would never expect that you grew up as a kind of lost and neglected child of two addicts, essentially. Yeah, that is the summary of, um, of the story. And I do think that memoir is a selfish act. And I think that you need to have a good reason to tell your story. I don't think that your story needs to be particularly extraordinary. I don't know that mine is. I feel like a lot of people grow up the uh, children of alcoholics or narcissists or just flawed people who weren't totally capable of taking care of them. But It is definitely honest. It was definitely painful to write. And I wouldn't have written it if I felt like I had another choice. You didn't have another choice because until you told your story, you would feel that you were meeting people on false terms or you didn't have a choice because... You had nothing else to say, (laughs) or no? no, It's it's more in a in a spiritual sense. I love meeting people on false terms. I am I am happy to I am happy to present someone who is high functioning, or I'm happy to ride out any assumptions that people make about me. I'm actually a very private person, and that's been a form of self protection over the years. I mean that I didn't have a choice in a spiritual, artistic sense, which is Mm -hmm. that as a writer, I tend to follow my hotspots, the obsessions, the best writing that I'm doing. And so as I was working on the television show and touring with Sweet Bitter, I was toying around with another novel. I was writing nonfiction, most of which appeared in the Sewanee Review. I was writing about pregnancy and motherhood and writing book reviews. But the best writing I was doing was about my parents and moving back to California. And the writer in me honors that. The child in me, the the private person, the human in me is so ashamed, but the writer knows that that's where the story is. So we oh, followed that's it. so interesting. So when you say the human in you feels ashamed, does the shame crop up every time you talk about the book or does the shame, can it transition into something more comforting? That's a great question. I am still waiting, I think, for the transition I think what's supposed to happen if you follow sort of general therapeutic guidelines is there's supposed to be some (laughs) sort of catharsis or Uh I I, I should feel proud of myself at a certain moment or 
taken the the extent of my story, which is that I've overcome a few things in order to get where I am. I I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't feel shame talking about it. I am proud of the book. It was hard for me to write. I think that it's a good book in many ways. I think it's better than Sweet Bitter, very different. Mm-hmm. But I haven't reached a place of peace with it. So when I talk about it with you or with anyone I'm doing press or when people reach out to me after they read it, it's still a little sore. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. And you explain that. I mean, I get it. I, um, let's bring our listeners in a little more deeply. Mm-hmm. You were raised in California. I guess in a way your parents were kind of a mixed marriage, right? Yeah, in the in sense the that they came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Yes, very much so. Um, you know, we are a family from Italian immigrants on both sides, but my father was from a more blue collar part of the South Bay of California, and my mother was from a upper middle class enclave of debutante balls and cotillions and horseback riding, and he was from the port side of the same hill, actually, but seemed more destined towards becoming a longshoreman or joining a union. I don't know a ton about them, and I really explore that in the book because I don't have an adult relationship with either of them. So Mm -hmm. I was really careful when writing Stray not to make conjectures about who they were before me because it's really the absence of that information that I'm interested in. But they um, were both drug addicts and alcoholics. And it ended, that marriage ended very quickly. And my father left when I was three years old and my sister was a year and a half. And we were raised by my mother who understandably was really angry at the way her life had turned out. She had sort of Mm -hmm. been conditioned from birth to be a homemaker and a wife and to procreate and was an incredible cook and an incredible gardener and could have sewed all of our clothes from scratch. And she ended up becoming a single mother of two. My dad was very absent from our childhood. And my mother is interesting because in a way, she's a victim twice. She is Mm -hmm. a victim of marrying my father, who is a very selfish drug addict, um, and being left with the children and with limited resources. And then when she was 46, she suffered a brain aneurysm that left her mentally and physically handicapped. Those two twists of fate are really beyond her control. But the problem that I have in writing about my mother is that's not the whole story. She's also can be very abusive and a lifelong alcoholic who never was able to overcome those addictions, mm-hmm. even now in her debilitated state. So that, also, I mean, this is the short story. <laughs> that's the short story. And, mm-hmm. and also, I have to say, as you're retelling this story for your background, for the listeners, I'm thinking too of the way in which your mother was utterly different as a parent to you as she was with your sister and how that created tremendous agony between the two of you, you and your sister. Yeah. And guilt. And yeah. It's something that we couldn't figure out until we were much 
older, that we had had such different experiences and grown up with these stories about how the other one was the lucky one. Yes. Uh, And I'm very lucky that she and I are so close, which is something I talk a lot about in Stray. Yes. Yes. So that we have been able to put the pieces of this back together. Well, in a way, you both had to raise yourselves because you were each living with a self-destructive and destructive parent. Because at one point, your mother cast you out when you were just a young teenager, and you had to go to Colorado to live with your dad, and he was not prepared (laughs) to really raise you. And he didn't. He sort of left you to your own devices, not all of which were good. No, I I think at the time, I really thought that I had beat the system. I think a 16-year-old mm. wants nothing more than total freedom, access to alcohol or drugs when she wants them, a 35-hour-a-week job that kept me from ever really fully engaging in high school. And I found his neglect to be thrilling, honestly, (laughs) at 16. Mm -hmm. And it only becomes clearer and clearer as, you know, now I'm 36, I'm about to have my second child, that this, it wasn't parenting. (laughs) It was cohabitation. And, you know, going back to what you said about my sister, which is so right, is that in her mind, I had achieved total freedom. And she's right. I, mm-hmm. I've been on my own since I was 16 years old. I've always had multiple jobs. When I decided to move to New York, I did it by myself with $200 in my car and drove the thing and made a life there. And she was very tied up in my mother and went to university close to home. And to me, I had been abandoned to her, she had been abandoned as well. <laughs> right. That is a very fascinating um, theme of Stray. Also, interestingly, you found yourself with absolutely, you know, kind of raised by wolves as you were in your father's house. You suddenly end up getting into and going to Kenyon College and the i got very irritated that your father was sort of dining off of that my daughter is going to kenyan no thanks to him and his his way of life you know he still does that's so fu- it is he really like he there's a scene at the end of the book where i had haven't seen my father in many many years by choice he is a crystal meth addict and alcoholic who relapses constantly still to this day and he showed up at my reading at powell's yes. bookstore for oh, my first I, book I and believe that he, it's just the quintessential narcissism of look my daughter's book is on the table. And at this point I've written about his addiction for Vogue magazine. I've <laughs> everyone in my life who's close to me knows that I don't speak to my father and the way the confidence with which he walked in the room. Lisa, if I had one tenth of that confidence, I would 
probably be president. I'd, I'd be a sociopath, but I would. It's just unbelievable. unbelievable. It is unbelievable that a man who can't keep his act together finds himself on the in the Northwest, right on time for your book talk. Doesn't even doesn't even process that you have, as you said, written about what a crappy person he was and is, and yet he wants credit. He wants credit for you. I mean, it's sad, but, but, and there you are clear eyed writing about it. I don't know how you even took a breath that night when you saw him. I mean, I think if you, you've read Stray, I think that compartmentalization and disassociation are coping mechanisms of children Mm -hmm. that have chaotic upbringings. And so really I write about it often. I, I shut down. I don't have a thought. Mm -hmm. I don't have a feeling. I go into a survival mode. And this, I I mean, people do this all the time. And you think to yourself, I'll process this later. And especially in a case where you're reading in front of people, it's very much like the show must go on. But that same feeling, the show must go on, can happen to me in my own home, which is I can't have these feelings are so hurtful and so intense. I cannot have them right now. And I think that in itself can be really unhealthy. (laughs) Well, let's keep going for a second, because a lot of what is in Stray is not just what happened in the deep past, but it's also your deciding it was time you had published Sweet Bitter. You decided to move to Los Angeles, which is really your home. You are in the throes of a very passionate but very unhealthy affair with a married guy who you call the monster. And you're talking about it completely honestly. You know, one minute you hate him, one minute you'll drop everything to see him. He doesn't treat you well. He tells you he's going to leave his wife for you. He, of course, doesn't. You find out that he's going on vacation with with her. And at the same time, you meet a man you call the, uh, you eventually call the love interest who is also involved with someone else. And he takes you on hikes and he takes you to places in Los Angeles in familiar places that you had never seen or never seen that way as a place of nature rather than as a place of maybe oppression. Hmm. And you write your romance with the love interest almost in real time from a little house in Laurel Canyon. But you were living it as you were writing it. I find that astonishing. Well, I, so I actually was collecting pieces of Stray for about four years. And I wrote the entire first draft of the book. Was that last year? It was 2019 (laughs) when my son was five months old. I wrote it in two and a half months, but (gasps) a lot of those pieces I had written in 2015. I had written throughout my affair with the monster, I was constantly writing, taking notes. We had WhatsApp transcripts. The mm-hmm. transcript that I have is over 500,000 words. It's just, there's so much, there was so much material. And so yeah. I, I wrote it quickly. It's false to say that I just, you know, it came from my brain in nine weeks. It was more that I was arranging. I finally understood the structure. But when I first met Matt, the love interest, who's now my husband and the father of my children, I was entirely ambivalent about the relationship 
I was mm-hmm. really focused on my love story with the monster. I was so invested in it. I think you have to be if you're mm-hmm. suffering like that for a long period of time. You really have to engage in some truly delusional magical thinking. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and very slowly, you know, I keep notebooks. As the love interest was showing me California, I started to write about the places we were going, which a lot of the time were places of trauma in California's history, whether it's Owens Lake or the Salton Sea, um, mm-hmm. places of environmental trauma. And But I did not think that I was writing about the next great love of my life um, <laughs> or the person <laughs> that I was going to have children with. As you right. mentioned, he was in a polyamorous situation, which made absolutely no sense to me. But he is also, the love interest is just a very whole person. He has a great relationship with his parents. The reason he Mm -hmm. can be polyamorous is because he's honest. He like believes in communication and believes in an ability to control your feelings and to let go of possession and to not live in insecurity. And he's speaking a different language. My language mm. is abandonment, rejection, validation, mm-hmm. like submission. And prove it. Prove it. Prove yes. that you love me. Do totally. something. I yeah. need worship. I need fidelity. I need, I need to drive through the night. I need to be in the throes of something that feels uncontrollable. And the longer I dated the love interest, the more I saw that this is a really adolescent concept, this romanticization romanticization of pain, Mm -hmm. this idea that to be in love means to suffer. And it's melodrama. It's for an addict of of a different kind, don't absolutely. you think? An yes. excitement addict, an adrenaline junkie, somebody who, by the danger inherent in a um, dishonest relationship, gets thrilled. Absolutely. And it's so yeah. similar to drugs. I mean, mm. illicit, illicit sex and illicit drugs are two of the most powerful forces that I've come up against. And with the monster, it really, it took on, it started to mirror the drama that I'd had with my parents in which difficulty needed to be the baseline. Obstacles, conflict, and difficulty. And so when I was with the love interest, I was like, this is so nice, but this is this <laughs> isn't what relationships are are made of. Like this isn't very this isn't very up and down. No, this it is was very that. steady. Yeah, but I really, you know, I was married before in my twenties, which isn't what the book is about. But I do talk about it in so far as I had this sense of failing at marriage, at being damaged and. I left that marriage impulsively and in a very hurtful way. And it kind of informed the story I was telling about myself, which is that I was never going to be capable of any kind of gentle love. Yes. And it took a long time. I mean, the contrast between, it's funny because readers of the book, they either really respond to the monster or they really respond to the love interest based on whatever their own values are in that situation. Uh You know, some people will be like, 
the relationship with the love interest is tepid and boring. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, it was just, it's really, it's really nice. It was really nice. He's an incredibly kind man. He wouldn't even know how to tell a lie if you paid him to. And yeah, in comparison to the flights, the money spent, the drama, the promises made and broken with the monster, I can see how the love interest is boring. But in the end, it has sustained me and interest me so far beyond. It's it's a, about whether you can recondition your brain to eroticize what is kind. Exactly. But I, I want to just give you credit for that. I mean, you don't need me for that. You've, you've achieved it. But I do want to say that as I'm reading Stray, I'm feeling, ooh, this is so exciting. And this other guy, not so exciting. And maybe he still has other girlfriends. You know, I'm worried about you at this point and as a reader. And then you achieve a, a real maturity and you achieve, you get kind to yourself, Stephanie. I think that's one of the themes of your memoir is that you don't think you deserve anything good after you leave your husband and move. You're impulsive, you're talented, but you don't give yourself credit for that. And you are just, you beat yourself up constantly. And it's a delight to see you stand up for yourself. Thank you. When I was writing this book, I really struggled with what the end should be because it felt like there wasn't some car crash come to Jesus recovery moment. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking about it with my agent and eventually my editor. And I said, my life that I have now, which is not perfect by any means, but is something I treasure and would do anything to protect hinges on an ability to be kind to myself. That's the end of, that's the turning point of the book. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it manifests in being able to stop this affair and turn a corner and keep a promise to myself and set a boundary. But I think that readers of traditional memoirs sometimes are looking for something bigger than that. But to me, if you are able to achieve that after a lifetime of a dialogue that is meant to keep you small and to keep you self-destructing, it's massive. It's a massive breakthrough and one that I still struggle with constantly. I mean, motherhood mm. throws a whole yes. new set of concerns into that, as you know. Well, um, I read an interview with you in which you said you hate uh, memoirs that end with a giant catharsis and everything is wrapped up in a bow. Yours is not. Yours is, I just want to say, just a dazzling read. You, I feel embarrassed that I know all this about you. You know nothing about me, and I feel like I need to share it because I feel very close to the Stephanie I read. And, you know, it's unrequited. <laughs> but it, it's beautifully written and quite a journey, quite a journey indeed. And I, I thank you for writing it. Oh, well, thank you for reading it. I will say that if someone really responds to the book, I do feel that there is an intimacy. It requires, I'm making assumptions about you and the experiences that you've lived through, but I find that people that respond to that story have often 
not dealt with the exact same situations, but dealt with feelings in this realm. And so I, I do maybe know something about you. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day I would love to meet when the world returns to whatever it will oh be. God. Yes. When you come to LA to see your when grandbaby. Exactly. And you know what I miss the most are hugs. So I'm going to mm-hmm. put on gloves and a mask and hug you, Stephanie. I and can't wait. We'll talk, we'll talk about food and we'll talk about writing and we'll talk about New York and LA and the Menendez brothers and all kinds of things. I'm a little obsessed with the Menendez brothers, P.S. Oh my God. I mean, we need to talk. My new novel that I'm working on has the Menendez trial in the background, which I have not talked to anyone about on this entire press tour, but um, my aunt was the prosecutor for that case. Well, that does come up for a second in Stray. And of course, I glommed onto that. I did. I yeah, did. it's a fascinating trial. I it's so before quarantine, I was like up to my ears in sexual abuse research <laughs> that I just I haven't oh. had the stomach for since. But yeah, you're but, pregnant. Give yourself a break. I know. I was just so excited to start a novel after this terrible memoir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the the um, I do want to say one thing or ask you one thing before we get to your list of five things. Your parents are both still alive, Mm -hmm. but you have no ongoing relationship with them. Is that right? I actually do. In the afterward to Stray, I mentioned that I see my mom once a month, but because of her condition, condition, I wouldn't call it um, an ongoing relationship. For example, she doesn't know about this book and she, I'm sure maybe she'll find out or maybe I'll talk to her about it at a certain point but she's in assisted living at the moment right. and reco- recovering from a bad fall in March and so the relationship is logistical like she doesn't understand that she has grandchildren or that I live in California and but I do I mean I do see her or I did before covid right and my fa- my father no no relationship right, right. And again, you have an 18-month baby and another baby on his or her way and a, a, a beautiful life, hard hard one. So uh, I'm really, really, I could not recommend your memoir more. And I hope everybody who listened will go out and get it. In the meantime, life is not all terrible. And there are five things. It's awfully hard right now, but not terrible, and you have your list of five things that make your life better. So let's start with number one. If you yes, have your list in front I of you, do. I have I your just, list in front of me. I, I just pulled it up. Um, my number one, and this would go for any time in my life, is poetry. Lately, I've been really leaning on the Black poets in my collection. I don't know when this is going to air, but we're in the middle of a Black Lives Matter uprising um, after the death of George Floyd. And I have been meditating on race and privilege and the systems and structures of which in many cases I'm a part of and ones that I hope to actively dismantle. But all that said, we're in this moment of total chaos, 
confusion in a lot of cases and rapid, rapid, rapid change. I've been thinking a lot about Black joy, which is something Mm. that a lot of poets and writers who are Black have also been talking about that I think maybe we do a disservice to our Black writers when we ask them to always talk about race. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of these poems really are about joy. They're about music and lineage and place and family and love and the body and sex. And I'm trying to make space for that. In addition to all the poets and writers who I consider teachers, there's also ones that I turn to to remind me of our our humanness, the the sort of univ- the universal experiences that we're going through. Mm-hmm. So, um, in case anyone would like to read, I'm reading a lot of Kevin Young and Claudia Rankine and Lucille Clifton and Dennis Smith and Donica Kelly and Nicole Seeley. Um, I could, if you follow me on Instagram, there are hundreds and hundreds of poets that I post. So yeah, that's where that's where my solace has been lately. I think poetry is a great balm, B-A-L-M, for us now. And last week or two weeks ago, I featured the poetry of my favorite teacher in college, who was the poet Michael Harper, who wrote a lot about jazz. And his poetry became music, at least to me. Okay, mm. number two. Number two is meditation. If you read Stray, you'll know that I suffer from anxiety, um, <laughs> as most yeah. of us do. But yes. it, it is something that I have self-medicated for in really unhealthy ways for a lot of my life. And when I became pregnant with Julian, who's my toddler son, I couldn't take a Xanax on a flight or when I had a bad day and I couldn't drink half a bottle of wine Mm -hmm. to blunt my feelings. And of course I got into meditation. This thing that everyone tells you is amazing, but you don't do it until you have completely run out of other choices. (laughs) Um, And I have quite a repertoire right now of practices these are very, very unstable in certain times. So I feel that everyone I know who is remotely emotionally intelligent is suffering uh-huh. from the same thing. And I just, I think there are tools if you can get yourself to sit down. I use the Headspace meditation app every day for at least 20 minutes, sometimes more. Mm. I use mm-hmm. it on my son every night. Um, wow. He listens to a, we do a five minute meditation. He just listens to it. He, I mean, while well, he's like right. running around pulling his diaper off, but <laughs> uh, I put it on when we're doing bedtime. I am, I just took a meditation tools for labor class and I am, I've, I've been through labor before. So I'm not one of those people who's like, I'm just going to meditate the whole time. Right. <laughs> but I, right. do, I do think that it can be an incredibly useful tool for pain management. So I'm hoping to incorporate more of that this time. Mm-hmm. And in February, right before lockdown, actually, I went to a meditation retreat in Taos, New Mexico with this spiritual teacher, Jan Birchfield. And uh, some of the people at the retreat are like a 10 on the woo-woo spectrum. And I'm like uh-huh. a, a three, like, what Jan is so incredible at is meeting you where you are. Like she can, you know, she'll 
talk to them about past lives and about right. shamanic techniques. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not there yet. <laughs> I can't, I can't talk. I, I'm like, can we just talk about like trauma and grief? And she yeah. is so great at that. And so I am using whatever I have to ground myself, especially before I have this baby, because yes. this year, man, 2020, oh. what happened? <laughs> I know. If it weren't for the fact that you're having a baby in 2020 and a book release in 2020, you would want to give the year back. In fact, for me, I just want a refund. I think we just restart the clock next year, but you know. Sounds great. I mean, I'm praying that by the time December comes, we've had some good news. That's all I can do. Um, Wink, wink, wink. I agree. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay. Number three, and and I'm very excited to hear about this. Well, so my I'm traditionally the cook in our relationship, but since we've been in quarantine and I've launched Stray, I've been working very long hours. And my husband constantly, in the beginning, it was he was texting me, what should we eat for dinner? And I'm like, you are a grown man. Go to our cookbook <laughs> shelf. We have 200 cookbooks. Go to the cookbook shelf open a book up and pick a recipe, shop Uh for the ingredients and make dinner. (laughs) That's how this game works. Uh, (laughs) And he all by himself got turned on to our Marcella Hazan, The Essentials of Italian Cooking, which is kind of the least sexy cookbook that I have in so far as it, there are no pictures. It looks like a textbook. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's an old, it's an old book. It's not a new and, you know, the latest thing. No, yeah, not at all. It's, um, I mean, what was it published in the 60s by Knopf? I think so, actually. yeah. And he has no idea who Marcella Hazan is, that she essentially brought Italian cooking to an American audience. She's often compared to Julia Child. And mm-hmm. he, one night I came home and he was making bolognese and I was like, what, where did you get this? And he's like, that Italian cookbook we have, it's a five hour <laughs> bolognese. He's like picked a very ambitious wow. sauce and he has been cooking his way. It's his favorite cookbook. And I really, I don't know how it happened, but I will forever. A lot of those recipes are beloved by me and I've been cooking them since I learned how to cook. But now I will always associate this quarantine period with her bolognese, but also the risottos, the simple tomato sauce, the olive oil cake. I mean, we've been all over that book. And he's become the chef for now. Uh, very much so. I, I'm i envious, actually. When he, when he bakes an olive oil cake, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, huh, you're living a life that I very much aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> um, number four. Number four is um, Sequoia National Park, which we just got back from. And we like to camp. If you've read Stray, you will Mm -hmm. know that my husband is a very passionate outdoorsman. I am a less passionate outdoors woman, but I am always happy once I'm there. I don't like packing the car. I can't stand all the gear. I, I There's a lot of like anticipating discomfort 
But once mm-hmm. I'm there, I'm always so grateful. And so he has been dragging me for years now. And the first time I was pregnant, we ran away to Joshua Tree when I was 38 weeks. And that was a little late. That was like, I was like, as we were out there, I was having cramps and pains. And I was like, I maybe this is a a touch close. Julian (laughs) Julian was born 11 days after that trip. So this time I'm 34 weeks and we went to Sequoia National Park. And I'm so grateful the parks are open again. It's hard for us because we like to be outside so much. That's part of the reason we live in California. But Mm -hmm. for Julian, our son, like we really want to raise him outside in touch with nature as much as possible. And Mm -hmm. watching him run around and crawl into these tree stumps and collect sticks for firewood and, you know, wake up 99 times in the middle of the night. (laughs) Where am I? All of this. I'm just really happy that we could have that experience this year because otherwise. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have been able to. You'd be stuck at home. And number five. Number five uh, is my lemon tree. I have a Meyer lemon tree outside of my bedroom in the backyard and it is has become emblematic to me of why I live in California. Are you living in the same Laurel Canyon place that you wrote about? No, that place is falling. It truly, I left because the landslides didn't stop. I reference the first yes. one it, during Stray and then all these trees had to be removed. Then the garden, which went up the hillside, collapsed as well. And I actually just couldn't handle living there anymore. Every time it rained, I was, I I mean, which I didn't own it. The landlord was, was taking care of this, but the constant construction and also just the constant fear of Mm -hmm. being covered. And the, I, anyway, uh, we live in Silver Lake and I miss Laurel Canyon very much. And it was a really precious time in my life. But the fact that that house still stands is I'm just waiting. <laughs> One day it's going to be in the news. I'm going to tweet about it. I'm going to be like, this yeah. house finally fell down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or it slid down. Yeah. Maybe it'll I, it, slide down Laurel Canyon. It happens all the time. It really does. Yeah. But what that place has in common with my current place and everywhere I've lived since I've moved back to LA is the flow with the outdoors, the mm-hmm. ability to have the doors and windows open, to walk outside and pick a lemon. And it turns out that lemons have been my number one pregnancy craving. And so this tree, I'm using it every single day. That's incredible. Yeah. It's like it's like you have a Whole Foods in your backyard. It It is one less thing to worry about. And I think my yeah. son has inherited it as well because he eats lemons raw every day, just chews on them. And does he does he actually eat the rind? He will bite through the rind and mash it up. He doesn't swallow the rind usually. He spits it out, but he'll he'll eat the interior like it's fruit. Yeah, well it is. It, it is. is. It's just and this tree happens to be very very sweet. I think he doesn't understand that lemons are sour yet. <laughs> I love lemons. As a matter of fact, lemons are sometimes they're one of my five great things, um, even though, you know, I have to buy them and they're not Meyer lemons. But I think the list is great 
Stephanie, just a true, true treat to talk to you and to read you. And now that you're on my radar, you will never leave it. Fantastic. I really look forward. I hope we do get to meet in person this year. And I'm so excited to be on this podcast and that you took the time to read the book. Thank you. Duh. If you, <laughs> what else are you supposed to do? When I was on book tours years ago, people would sometimes, uh, radio hosts would sometimes show me how pristine my book was because they hadn't opened the shrink wrapping. And I thought, hmm, is that supposed to be a compliment that you haven't read it? I don't know. That, ha- um, that, is, that happened with Sweet Bitter many, many times. I was like, oh, your assistant wrote questions for you? Fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Coverage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Stephanie Dandler, author of Stray, the new memoir published by Knopf, also author of Sweet Bitter, the novel that you may have read. You can follow Stephanie on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at SM. Dandler or on her website at stephaniedandler.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find us. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.